some electronic device that you'll be looking at the text with us this morning. Uh, We will be in Amos chapter 5. Amos chapter 5. So Amos is towards the end of the Old Testament. If you get to Daniel, you just need to go a little bit more to your right. And if you make it to Matthew, work your way back to the left. It's nestled in there amongst the rest of the minor prophets. So just a little bit of recap as we get started. Um, remember, Amos is a, is a minor prophet. Minor simply in its brevity, not in its significance, right? And so we have the major prophets, which are Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, these longer books. And then the end of the Old Testament, we have the minor prophets because of their, their length. Again, not because of their significance. Amos was a layman. He was not a professional prophet, but was called of God, was given some visions of things that were, were going to take place. And he is ministering somewhere roughly around the year 760 to 755 B.C. Um, you know, we're talking just short of 800 years before Christ. Um, and we're just short of 3,000 years removed from the book. And as we've been looking at this over the last month, I think what the, the common ref- refrain that I've heard from y'all and, and even from my own heart is this, is that Amos is remarkably relevant for a 3,000-year-old book. Um, that, it's, that it's been shocking as we work our way through the Hebrew poetry, as we work our way through some things that, some idioms and some things like that um, that we don't deal with on a regular basis. Um, we don't do a lot of prophecy this day and age. We don't do a lot of, honestly, a lot of poetry. And so there are some layers that we have to peel back, but when we've gotten down to the heart of what Amos is attempting to communicate, that it has been um, like arrows shot straight into our hearts as well. So Amos is ministering to the northern kingdom. So at this point in Israel's history, Israel has split into two kingdoms. The original 12 tribes have split. And so 10 tribes have gone to the north um, and are still called Israel. And two tribes are in the south and they are called Judah. Amos is from Judah, but his ministry and his message is predominantly for the north. So for the 10 tribes that now make up Israel. Um, roughly 200 years prior is when the split happened. You can find this in, in 2 Kings 12. And Jeroboam, when he splits, he did not want his people, his tribes in the north, going back to the south, which is where Jerusalem was located. And he set up um, in Bethel and in Gilgal a couple of shrines. Like he literally put up golden calves again, right? It, it's just absurd to think about the, the thing that nearly destroyed them um, in Egypt as they came out of the Exodus, right, was that he did, does this again, not wanting his folks to go back to Jerusalem, not wanting them to be pulled back. And he, it was a political move. And so for the last 200 years, they've kind of had this cult-focused worship that is, it resembles, right, Judaism. It resembles their heritage, but not really because they've set up false gods. And yet... Um, over the rain here recently, um, and when I mean rain, I mean like not rain, but over the authority that's been over them, they have experienced tremendous um, prosperity. They are more at, um, they have, their boundaries have been established more so than David and, and except when David and Solomon were in charge. Um, their wealth is second only to that era as well. This is the silver age of Israel's history. And so there's peace, there's stability, there's wealth. And so the assumption has been God's for us. 
God's with us. And they have presumed upon him. And yet, in fact, what has been going on, as we have looked at the first four chapters of Amos, is that it's, it's anything but the blessing of God. God is actually quite irate with them because they have not reflected his character or his image, that justice has not reigned and has not flourished, that they have gained their wealth and their prosperity on the backs of others. And so Amos starts with the lion roaring, saying, no more. Right? The lion saying, I see and I know and I'm going to pounce. And so what we have seen as we've walked through this passage and why we will deal with books like Amos is one is because we feel like all of God's word is relevant. All of God's word speaks and it's beneficial. But we need to be reminded, right, that God cares about sin. That he has a standard and an expectation of holiness. And that sometimes we can become so focused on this New Testament perspective, right? And we we forget to balance it with the fact that, that God will vindicate and that God will deal with sin. And he's going to deal with it in one of two ways. We'll either stand before him or Jesus will stand before him for us. And that we have been reminded that this book is heavy and it is weighty. And that there's just kind of been this, this weight that has been on us over the last month um, corporately. Um, I, I think we, we felt that even last week as, as we called a bit of an audible, right? And, and after the sermon, this heavy passage in chapter 4, and we sing one song Right, a heavy song, and then we're, we're done, and we just kind of leave with that weight on us. And so what we've been asking you to do is, is to trust us and to, to invite you in to let it be heavy. Um, we're not going to let it crush us. We're not going to stay here forever. But there's something good and right about learning how to mourn and how to lament and how to deal with the effect and the reality of sin and seeing how God feels about it. And then... Ultimately, that changes the way we see the rescue that Jesus has performed for us. So let's pick up in verse 1 of chapter 5. Amos continues, Hear this word that I take over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, The city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, and do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing." Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like a fire in the house of Joseph and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth, he who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name. Who makes destruction flash forth against the strong, so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor, and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine." 
For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe, who turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such, in t- in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord. In all the squares there shall be wailing. In all the streets they shall say, Alas, alas. And they shall call the farmers to mourning and to the wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all the vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. That's where we're going to stop this morning. So last week we ended chapter 4. Um, and, and in chapter 4, God is walking through the severe mercies that he has poured out, right? He's talking about, look, there's been drought, and there has been defeat in battle, and there has been a lack of, of, of food, and there's been famine. He says, and I want you to know something. I did that. And I did it so that you would notice and that you would return to me, but you haven't. And so he has shown his graciousness through their history, and now he's saying, look, I have poured out severe mercy upon you. And one of the ways that Israel has presumed upon the Lord was they assumed they were untouchable, that judgment would not come to them. That whenever God shows up, it's always going to be for their good, for their benefit, to, to, to wipe out anyone who's in their path. And what God is now telling them through Amos is, I'm coming. Remember verse 12 of chapter 4? He says, because you have not returned to me, prepare to meet your God. And this is not a light thing. It is not a good thing. This is a terrifying situation where he says, I'm coming, and I'm coming not as your rescuer, but as one in battle. I'm going to, I'm going to continue to pour this out upon you. And so verse 13 ends with this hymn. Sorry, verse 13 of chapter 4 ends with this hymn. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. This would have been a hymn that they would have sung and would have celebrated that their God was the one who was the God of creation, that their God was the one who, right, who is sovereign over us, as we just sang. So right, that's the, the, the hymn that Amos leaves them with saying, but this God is coming for you and against you. And immediately we turn over into chapter 5. And in chapter 5, the scene that we have is, is poetic. And we're going to look at the structure of this in a second. But the initial thing that we see is that it's a funeral. And so I want you to imagine this hymn that he has just shared with them that would have been rich and glorious. It would have brought thoughts of, yeah, 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 we've sung that to God. We think those things about him. And then in verse 1, he says this, So hear this word that I may take up over you. Right? And so they're going, okay, we're going to hear from God again in lamentation. And most likely Amos began to sing, Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. He begins to sing a funeral song over them. A funeral song over the living, saying, because this is your destiny. You're going to die. And you're going to die at the hand of God because you have, you have abhorred him. 
You have not trusted him. You have not returned to him. And so imagine the shock. Like we don't have funeral songs, right, in our society. Not, not really. There's not one that if someone stood up and began to sing this morning, right, that everyone would go immediately kind of have like this chill of like, oh, that's, that's a funeral song. And yet that's what Amos is doing is he is singing a known lament over Israel saying, we're, we're at your funeral. You're just getting to see it before you're there. And so here's what Amos does. Amos um, builds out a poetic structure here. And he's going to start in verse 1 and end in verse 17 with this funeral scene. Okay? So that's A and A, right? And then B, you're going to see judgment. And so he, goes, he moves into judgment. And then after judgment, he's going to say, here's how you can avoid the judgment. Right? So that's a, your A, your B, your C. And then D is why. Why you're going to be judged. And then it's going to focus in verses 8 and 9 on God. Right? So he goes, he's going to say, um, we're at a funeral. Here's your judgment. Here's how you're going to avoid it. Here's why you're being punished. And here's God. And then he reverses it. And from God, he goes, all right, here's, how you, here's why. Here's how you avoid it. Here's judgment. Here's funeral. And so it matches. It's like it folds up with God as the pivot there. And so what we're going to do is we'll be looking at it from the outside in as we move towards God this morning. So verse 1 and verse 17 are both focusing on just kind of a a poetic dirge, a a lament over them at their funeral. Um, and, And imagine the offense of this as they're alive and assuming that God is only for them and would never come against them. Second, he's going to move into judgment beginning in verse 2. Um, He says, So fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand will have a hundred left. And those that went out a hundred will have ten left. He describes Israel now as a virgin. And he's saying this as someone who's young in life, who is vibrant, who has most of her life ahead of her. And her life being snuffed out at that point. That there would be shock. That there would be dismay. That 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 hurts in a different way to see the vibrancy of life taken out. Um, And that it's it's a premature end. Before there was companionship. Before there were children. That this was happening. And he's describing them as a nation saying, this is happening to you. Because remember who they are right now. They are vibrant um, in peace. They are vibrant in wealth. Right? Like they are as good as they have been for all but a small period of their history. He's like, you should have everything before you. Moving forward and having this long and lustrous time as a nation. He goes, no, it's going to end. And it's going to end soon. And it's going to end like a young woman being cut short in the prime of life, even before the prime of life. He says, you're going to fall and there will, you will rise no more. You will be forsaken on her land and there will be none to raise her up. And what he's saying is there is, I could, but I'm not going to. That when you fall, there will be no one to pick you up. What Amos never does in the entire book is ever mention their looming enemy, Assyria. Assyria is, is, is a superpower that has, and, and they're in a period of kind of just taking a breath during this moment of history, which is allowing Israel to, to gain some prosperity and some strength. Um, but come three decades from now, in 722, Assyria is going to swoop in and is going to do what God has, has threatened is going to happen. 
And Amos just kind of lets it, he just leaves it there. Like they all know Assyria is out there, close and looming and growing. And he never says, hey, that's who, who God's going to use. He just says, God's going to do it. That he's going to come in and that you're going to be invaded. And in the city that sends out a thousand sh- 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 soldiers, I almost said shoulders, soldiers, will come back with a hundred. Right? What he's talking about here is utter destruction. Yeah, there's a few that survive, but there is totality. There is destruction. You will be decimated. And your false sense of security right now in your power and in your might and even in your peace is going to be wiped out. Where the only appropriate response will be to sing your own funeral songs and dirges. That there will be wailing. We see this as well in verse 16. Therefore, says the Lord... The God of hosts, the Lord, in all the squares. So he's saying, in all your cities, there will be wailing. In all the streets, they will say, alas, alas. And they will call the farmers to mourning. He's like, because there's going to be no fields left. There's going to be no people left. We're all going to just be standing there mourning and wailing. Those who are skilled in lamentation and those who simply remain. Because judgment is coming and we will be routed and devastated and annihilated. And so he starts by saying, look, you're in a funeral, and here's what the Lord has said. And then he moves in to, for the first time in Amos, but there might be some hope. Look at verse 4. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live. It's the first time he's told them, you might live. You might survive this. Seek me and live. Right, and so there's this phrase, okay, seek me and live. And, and so immediately, right, you can almost imagine some relief in the crowd as they hear this and go, okay, all right, let's get back to our religion. And he immediately squashes that. But do not seek Bethel, which is where they've set up a, a, a shrine, or cross over to Beersheba, or in Gilgal, because they're going to go into exile and Bethel will come to nothing. So seek the Lord and live. He says it again. Lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and devour it with none to quench it for Bethel. So he's saying, look, Bethel, it's going to be gone. So if you're turning to Bethel as your shrine, you're going to be devoured. If you're turning to Gilgal, to Beersheba, these things are not going to go well for you because I'm going to wipe them out. What he's saying is this. Seek me and live. And your instincts are wrong. Because you're going to turn back to your religious system, and it's what's led you, uh, led you away from me in the first place. So if you turn back to it, you will be destroyed as I'm going to destroy them. He's like, you've got to turn to me. You need to seek the exact opposite of what you've been doing socially and religiously. So these places, Ma, were they shrines. Bethel is the place where Jacob wrestled with God. Right? It's the place where God was present, where he had shown up. And so there was a reason to go there because they're like, God's here. Bethel means the house of God. Right? Um, Gilgal is where the, the nation of Israel first entered into the promised land where they crossed the Jordan and got what God had promised them, what they had inherited. And so they set up 12 stones there, right? Representative of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's where they first launched out into the land of Canaan, into this inheritance that they had. It's where they quit eating manna. Because they began to eat off the fruit of the land. Right? And so um, Beersheba now is a place where they remember that God keeps his promises. Right? Bethel's a place where they remember that God is present, that he is here. And third, Gil, sorry, that, sorry, Gilgal was, was the one. Beersheba 
is where all of the patriarchs, right, where we have um, Isaac, where we have Jacob, where we have uh, Joseph, they all had encounters with God there. We see it in Genesis 21, Genesis 26, and Genesis 46. And God continues to say things like this in Beersheba. I'm with you. Fear not. I'm going to go with you. I'm for you. And so Beersheba is the place where they would be reminded that God was with them, that he was for them, not to fear. Gilgal is where they were reminded that God is the one who, who keeps his promises. And Bethel is the place where they would say God's present. This is his home. And he is telling them, don't go to these places. Because in them you have sought the promises without seeking me. He's like, you've wanted what I've promised without wanting me. What he's telling them is it's not enough to know the promises or to even want the promises. You want me. You need me. Church, for so many of us, right, we know the promises of God. We know the things that we hope for him. But what we really want is those things, and we really don't want him. And God is telling them, look, you have for 200 years sought a religious system that you could control, that you can manipulate, that would make you feel good. You think that I'm pleased because of your outward prosperity. And what I'm saying is you have missed me all along. That it is evident that you haven't wanted me, that you haven't sought me, that you haven't got me. It's not enough just to have these thoughts. You have to have me. Why? How do we know that this is what's going on? Look at verse 8. Sorry, verse 7. Because you turn justice to wormwood and you cast down righteousness to the earth. So they're saying, look, the two pillars of the covenant is that we are to be just and we are to be righteous. That we are to imitate God who is just and righteous. And so we know that their religious system wasn't leading them to God because they were not looking like God. They weren't being transformed and becoming like him. He says, look, you people, I've told you how you can avoid it, but why are you being punished? But you've taken justice, and justice should be this sweet thing, this tasty thing of, right, when victims are crying out, when they are longing for relief, justice is sweet. When the people of God were in Egypt crying out for 400 years and he shows up through Moses to rescue and save them, right, there was sweetness and relief. And he says, but what you've done is you've turned justice that I've given to you to wormwood, which was this bitter, horrible herb. And he says, so you've made it taste bad because you haven't given it and you've twisted it and you've thwarted it. And people in your own, like you have enslaved your own people. You haven't been a people of justice. It's become this bitter, nasty thing. And he says also, you cast down righteousness to the earth. It's this picture of being able to hold righteousness and just spiking it. Saying it's worthless. I don't need it. Breaking it and walking away from it. He's like, so you have made justice a bitter thing, and you have cast down righteousness. So he's saying, look, you want to avoid the judgment that I'm sending? Turn to me, seek me, and live. Because people know you have not looked like me, and you have not sought me. You have sought your own comfort, your own ease, and your own wealth. Where else do we see this? Look at verse 10. 
says, in your culture, you hate him who reproves at the gate. So at the gate, they would have kind of their legal system set up where there would be judges and people taking care of situations. He goes, you hate the one who judges. You abhor him who speaks the truth. Look, you trample on the poor. You exact taxes of grain from him. He's saying, look, you're heaping additional taxes on sharecroppers, on poor pheasants, on, on poor farmers. You're taking these things from them. He's like, you're, you're taking it. And he says, look at what you're doing with it. You trample on the poor. You exact taxes of grain from him. And you have built houses of hewn stone. And you shall not dwell in them. So the normal home at this point would have been built out of clay. Someone like Solomon would have been the one that a luxury would have been to have a house built out of hewn shaped stone. So he's saying you are trampling on the back of your own people, not giving justice, not giving righteousness. You're building comfort and ease and luxury on them. And you've built these homes that show that. They're ostentatious. They're not what others are, 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 are having because you are destroying them. He goes, you trample on the poor and you have built houses of hewn stone. You won't dwell in them. He goes, you have planted pleasant vineyards. So vineyards were a place that were, they were known for luxury, for ease, for celebration, for comfort, but also for debauchery. He says, and you're not going to drink the wine from these. For I know how many are your transgressions, how great are your sins. Listen, he continues to describe their culture. You afflict the righteous. You take a bribe. You turn aside the needy in the gate. He's saying, in every way that justice is supposed to be meted out, you're not doing it. You're taking bribes. He's like, and then when someone is guilty, you're paying bribes so that they're not guilty. When the needy and, the, and, and those needing justice come, you thwart them. You trample upon them. You don't give it. That it's all about who has money. So he says, so therefore he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time for it is an evil time. He's saying, look, when judgment comes, don't complain about it. This is deserving. This has been long standing for generations. And you would be prudent to keep your mouth shut when judgment comes. Like, it, like, like the, you're saying that it wasn't deserved or it wasn't appropriate for it to be happening. They have wanted freedom. They have wanted security. They have wanted ease and comfort. And they have assumed that God has given it. And God is saying, no, no, no. You have trampled on the backs of your brothers and sisters to gain it. And you have not meted out justice and righteousness. And so you will be judged. You'll be judged. And we get to verse 8. So he who made the Pleiades on Orion, we begin to see this hymn again. And he turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night and calls the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes across the fortress. He just begins to say, God is the creator God and he is big and he is He's in control of the seasons. The Pleiades and the Orion um, were, were constellations that they could see at the, the beginning of the new year. It's a reminder that God is in control. He is looking to make them feel small and to tremble at who he is. That when he describes God as the lion, that they're remembering that he is the creator. That he is over all. That he is sovereign. The question... 
that his audience should be asking is the same question we should be asking. It's a question that we continue to repeat week after week. Who could stand? Who could stand before this God? The one who put the Pleiades and Orion, the constellations in the sky. The one who creates. Right? The one who's in control. Who could stand? We think about the Garden of Eden. When sin entered, right, Adam and Eve did not want to stand before God any longer who they had been in the presence of. They hid from him. In Exodus, when God is rescuing his people out of Egypt, and he comes during the Passover and wipes out the firstborn of any who didn't put blood on the doorpost, who could stand? No one. No one was able to say, no, God, not my house. Right? They weren't able to do that unless they had followed him. When they go to Sinai in Exodus 19, he shows up and there's smoke and there is power and there is lightning and there is trembling. And people are falling back and they're fearful going, we cannot stand before you. When we think about judgment, that the wrath of God poured out as he's talking about in Amos and knowing that that will come someday. We're thinking, who could stand? When we think about even the severe weather that has been across our region Right? Over the last couple weeks. They hit Oklahoma again last night, right? As we think about those things, we're remembering, right, as awesome and as terrible as that can look and seem, that's not God. But He, right, is over that. If we think that is fearful and terrible and mighty and ferocious, how much more so is the Lion of Judah? The one who owns, controls, creates, and makes it all. And so we have to ask the question, who could stand? Look at verse 17 once again. Because listen to how he ends this section. And in all the vineyards there shall be wailing. For I will pass through your midst. He is most definitely reminding them of when he passed through Egypt on their behalf. And there was weeping and crying as the firstborn was wiped out. And Pharaoh finally let, his peop- finally let Moses and the people go because God had shown up. And it was a horrible, terrible night that redeemed them. And he's saying, look, you don't turn to me to live. You don't seek me and live. I'll pass through your midst too. Don't presume upon me that I will not met out discipline or punishment to my people. Right? He ends this with this like fearful moment of, I will pass through your midst. So church, would we not be a people who would walk away from Amos, leaving our time in it thinking, I can stand before God. If you have that small a view of God that you think that you could stand before him and things will be all right then we have missed what's going on in Scripture. But not only do I want you not to leave thinking that that you could stand before Him, would we be reminded you will meet Him? Both of those things are true. That we cannot stand before Him, and you will meet Him. That He is coming for us. And so our choice in this then is to ask the question, who can stand? Where is their hope? Church, I hope your heart is immediately turned to rejoicing and celebrating Jesus. Right? Who came, right, and, and to live the life we were meant to live. To die the death we deserve. 
and then beat sin and Satan and death, right? That those should not be these cliche things that we say. But that he satisfies the wrath of God that is very real and very present in Amos on your behalf so that he imputes, he gives you his righteousness so that now you can boldly approach the throne room of God. That you can be called son and daughter of the king. That you have been brought into the family of God. And so now we don't have to tremble and to fall back and to fear. We have, through Christ, access to this same fierce God. Who is also merciful and gracious and good. And so, one of two things will happen for each and every one of us. And each and every person in history. In all of humanity, of all nations, of all tribes, of all tongues, for all time, will stand before God. And either Christ will cover them, and he will say, welcome son, welcome daughter. Enter into your joy forevermore. Or you will stand there opposed, apart from him, as his enemy. And the lion will roar, and you will be judged, and you cannot stand. That's, that's the message of Amos, is that we will stand in Christ or we will stand alone against him and God will pass through our midst and it will not be for our good. Or we can accept that Jesus has satisfied it on our behalf and we will trust and follow and rescue him. And so the issue, the, the reason we know that the people here, even in their religious activity, were not pleasing God was because they didn't look like him. That we're called to image him, to look like him through the, power of Holy, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I'm going to mention one thing that we will look at in, in further detail because we just don't have time this morning. But one of the things we're going to talk about as we finish up Amos in the next few weeks is lament. That we want to be a people who lament. Because what lament is, 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 is a willingness to say, God, things aren't as they should be. And I'm hurting. And they're not okay. And I'm not okay. And things are broken. But God, I trust you. And we say it with honesty. And we say it with pain. Because this morning we know in this room there are relationships. Whether it's with spouses or with children or with friends or with coworkers that are broken. That are tattered. That are, that are on their last leg. We know that there is racial inequality. We know there is a lack of resources. We know there is a lack of health. We know that there are victims of abuse. These are things, church, we should lament. And cry out and say, God, this isn't what you intended. This isn't what you want. But here's the beauty of lament. Lament says in the pain, this isn't the end. Because God is going to redeem. And lament is saying, God, we know that this isn't what you will have for all time. There will be a day of complete rejoicing and redemption and wholeness and health. And there will be no more lack. Because that's what you created us for and you're drawing us back into. And Jesus is the one that we're following back to the Father. And so we can look around and say, there are broken, wrong things. Church, we have to be a place where people can walk through those doors and say, I am clearly not okay. And it may take a while before I am. And we can't, right, overwhelm them and say, no, 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 Jesus is good. Put a smile on your face. Everything's all right. Jesus is good. 
and everything will be all right, but it may not be right now. And we have the space in our faith to say that. And so we're going to talk about the practicalities of lament and how we can do that more in the weeks to come. But we do not want to be blind or numb to cultural sin any longer. And we don't want to be lulled to sleep with prosperity like Israel was, assuming that that means God is pleased and blessed. We don't want to presume that he would never judge us. We're the American church. But that we would lament over tragedy, suffering, saying, God, we know you can do something about it. And our prayer may be hurt and it may be pain, but it leads to trust and we will not be silent and we will not pretend that it's not there. We don't want to bury or ignore it. And listen, it's going to make you uncomfortable for someone to share some of their pain because you're not going to know what to say. And you don't always have to say something. You can just hurt and cry with them because God is here and he doesn't leave and he doesn't forsake and he ministers and he meets with us. And when we begin to image that, justice begins to flow. And righteousness begins to flow. And people begin to see a glimpse of heaven on earth with what God has intended and what we will have forevermore for those who are in Christ. When people who are broken begin to find healing and restoration amongst other broken people. Church, that's who we want to be. That's what we long for. We don't have the the time this morning to look at this in all the practical ways. I promise we will get into this. Amos is going to give us plenty of opportunity for that. Um, But here's where we're going to end. The people of Israel thought in their peace, God was pleased. That in their prosperity, that God was pleased. Then in their hope for a, a continued growing future, that God was pleased with them. And what God is saying is, you don't look like me. I'm not pleased and judgment's coming. Church, this morning, would we not look at outward prosperity, at outward peace, at outward hope as signs of God's presence or his blessing? But here's what we can look at, that we have peace with God because of Jesus. That's the peace we need. That we have blessing, that we've been brought into the family of God, and so we have access to all of it. That we have satisfaction that we can only find in Christ. We have security and hope in Jesus. And so when he says, return to me and live, we know that that is only in Jesus. And so we can have then the grace to weep with those who weep and to laugh with those who laugh. And in the weeks to come... We will continue to see how to lament and trust Jesus. But church, would we return to him and live, knowing that our only hope is found in Jesus, in his life, his death, and his resurrection. I'm going to pray for us. Um, The band is going to come back up. I would invite you to remain seated just for a few moments. Um, When the band begins to sing, you're welcome to stand and to sing with us. Take these moments to let the Spirit minister to you. To maybe to reveal sin that needs to be confessed. Reveal areas where you're trusting something other than him. Where you're looking for your security in something other than Jesus. Um, If you need to sit through the entire set, you do that. There'll be folks in the back of the room to pray with you if you need them. Um, But let's pray now. Jesus, you are merciful and gracious and faithful and good. 
And Father, we presume upon you far too often. Lord, would you reveal our sin to us, that we would repent, that we would confess, that we would turn to you. Father, Father, forgive us of the things that we find temporary satisfaction at, satisfaction in, and assume it means we don't need you. Father, forgive us for looking at outward blessings, outward prosperity, and assuming that means that you're pleased with our life. God, what we long for is peace with you. Satisfaction in Christ. In knowing that we can be sons and daughters of the King. That Amos' story of judgment doesn't have to be our story because Jesus has faced it for us. But God, that we would be urgent and desperate for our, our friends and our families and our co-workers and those who don't know that Jesus is the rescuer. And Father, thank you that you are patient, wishing none to perish. That you withhold even today your judgment. Jesus, minister to us now. In your name we pray. Amen.